me start saying that 2015 was, uh, in a way, uh, in terms of the Portuguese, of Portuguese democracy, the beginning of a process of change in cabinet formation. Omar Salgado, quanto do teu sal são lágrimas de Portugal. O salty sea, so much of whose salt is Portugal tears. Now, verses like this one by the acclaimed 20th century poet and critic Fernando Pessoa were somberly recited in his native Portugal throughout the 2010s as the country went through a bruising cycle of financial insolvency, economic downturn, and fiscal austerity. With an international bailout looming in 2014, Pessoa's melancholic poetry mirrored the mood of the crisis-stricken nation. Fast forward to this year, and the socialist government of Prime Minister Antonio Costa has pulled off the unlikely feat of stabilizing the country's finances while sparing it the kind of draconian austerity enforced by his predecessor, the right of center Pedro Passos Coelho. Costa first rose to office in late 2015 propelled by a no-confidence vote in parliament, despite falling short of a majority in an election earlier that year. He fell short again in 2019, his parliamentary majority relying on the support of two parties to his left, the Communists and Bloco de Esquerda. This left-wing united front disbanded last November when the government's budget, deemed not progressive enough by these two forces, was voted down, triggering a snap election scheduled for last Sunday. Earlier that week, we had sat down with University of Lisbon politics professor Antonio Costa Pinto, no relation to the Prime Minister, and Peter Wise, the Financial Times' Portugal correspondent, to survey the electoral field as Portugal headed for the polls. We can now report the results. Costa pulled off a stunning victory with almost 42% of the vote, meaning that it will no longer need a smaller coalition partner. We hope that our guests' comments will remain relevant now the suspense is gone. Namely, how has the country achieved financial solvency with only limited austerity? How come are the socialists, sunk into irrelevance most everywhere else, still dominant in Portugal? And what does the rise of Chega, the upstart right-wing party whose rhetoric is at times redolent of Salazarism, tell us about the mood of the country? Now, as always, please remember you can help the show immensely by doing very little. Consider rating or reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. And if you're feeling generous, remember you can also support us financially by donating as little as the price of a sandwich a month through our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash undecencypod. Now enjoy the show. So we are delighted to have with us two leading scholars and commentators on Portugal for our episode today. On one side of the line, we have Professor Antonio Costa Pinto, no relation to the current Prime Minister of Portugal. Professor Costa is a research professor at the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon. His latest uh, co-authored book from 2019 is called Political Institutions and Democracy in Portugal, Assessing the Impact of the Euro Crisis. And on the other end of the line, we have Peter Weiss, who is the uh, Portugal correspondent at the Financial Times. Two of Peter's um, latest dispatches from the country were titled Emigration and Low Growth Fuel Portugal's Demographic Crisis and Trust in Portugal's Elite Wanes Over Struggle to Tackle Corruption, all of which will be relevant to our conversation today. So 
let's take it away with our, our first question here. Um, help us contextualize kind of what's going on in Portugal at the moment as we as we ready up for uh, the upcoming legislative race. Uh, Social Democrat uh, Prime Minister Costa took over from the Liberal Democratic Passos Coelho government in 2015, though he failed to secure a majority in that year's race. Uh, four years later, his minority government was again re-elected with uh, a minority of the, I guess, a plurality of the of the vote, 36 percent. Then in November last year, uh, Costa's left-wing coalition broke up, and he called for yet yet another election. So, can you uh, just to get us started? Can you walk us through what exactly happened to the coalition, and why has the Socialist Party of Portugal been repeatedly unable to garner a sufficient majority, starting with uh, Professor Costa Pinto and turning to Peter. Uh, well, thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, let me start saying that 2015 uh, was, uh, in a way, uh, in terms of the Portu of Portuguese democracy, uh, the beginning of a process of change in cabinet formation in Portugal. Now, why? Because in 2015, the socialists lost the election, but uh, they went to knock on the door for the first time in the history of Portuguese democracy. They went to knock on the door of the communist and the radical left party called the left-wing bloc, uh, uh, tell them that we have a majority in parliament, uh, let's negotiate an agreement and to have a minoritarian uh, cabinet of the socialist party with the support of the Communist Party and the so-called uh, left-wing bloc. This is, uh, of course, uh, this meant a huge change in cabinet formation in Portugal because uh, uh, the right was always able to form either a single party government or a, a coalition government on the right, and in a way the socialists were uh, uh, condemned to uh, uh, minority uh, minority cabinets, uh, usually very unstable. So uh, this is, of course, uh, the event that in a way explains why uh, after six years uh, of uh, minoritarian cabinet of the socialists with the first stable and since 2019 as stable parliamentary support of the communist uh, and the left-wing bloc. That's what explains, uh, in a way, this anticipated elections. Sure. And uh, Peter, you've done you've done a great deal of reporting on kind of um, the uh, the uh, all of the deals, all of the coalition uh, kind of uh, deal making that has gone on on the left side of the political spectrum in, in Portugal. What, were you surprised at all that the that the coalition broke up uh, recently? And what do you think are the um, the odds that it will be um, that it will be renewed going forward? Yes, I I think um, the 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 outlook for the coalition became much more uncertain after the 2019 elections. Um, in 2015, when Antonio Costa um, made this uh, very bold step, and as he put it, it was equivalent to, to uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall because. Although um, you know the, the Socialist Party and the Communist Party and the Left Bloc are all clearly on the left of center of of of, of Portuguese politics, they had always there had been no cooperation between them. In fact, they saw themselves as as, as quite uh, firm rivals. So this was um, 
a very unusual and unexpected step that he had um, mentioned this mentioned it in passing but really when he went into the 2015 election there was no um, proposal for such a uh, for such a coalition at all so it came as quite a shock and as a surprise especially as Antonio mentioned the socialists in fact lost the election um, the center-right social democrat party won the election um, um, which was kind of a surprising phenomenon in Portugal because the the PSD, as they called the Social Democrats, had taken through had taken Portugal through a very tough um, international bailout program with very tough austerity measures. So the, the the fact that they emerged after that as the the largest party was was quite a quite a phenomenon in European terms. Because in Portugal, although those austerity measures, you know, had caused a hard, a lot of hardship and, and a certain amount of unrest, overall voters seemed to be in favour and felt that this was something that the country needed to do. But then Costa and his socialists coming in the second second position in those 2015 elections makes this very unexpected move. And um, and reaches out to the Communist Party, which is an old guard, sort of Soviet-style Communist Party, not really like the reformed communists, communist parties that we know in Italy and France. And this radical left bloc, a, a kind of anti-capitalist party in a more sort of modern configuration of the left, the key difference, I think, between 2015 and, and, and after the, the following election in 2019 is that in 2015, the parties had written agreements. They made individual written agreements, not between the three of them, but individually yeah. with the PS, the Socialist Party, um, on what they planned to do in government. And it, it really, although they differed on many things, you know, they found enough things that they could agree, agree upon to make this uh, a viable government. Although we should also state that the communists and the left bloc were never in government. It was a minority socialist party government supported by those two parties in parliament, but they never had any government role. After the 2019 election, um, relations between the three parties had become a little bit more strained. Um, the left bloc and the communists didn't feel that the socialists had gone far enough in terms of social spending, social benefits, labor leg legislation. And so the, the negotiations following the 2019 election failed to produce any written agreements on the, on the following government. And so that government proceeded on the basis of the left bloc and the Communist Party supporting the minority socialist government with their votes in parliament, but having no written agreement, uh, which was leaving them as more, more free to disagree and to vote against when they, when they felt like it. 
and um, and that is essentially what happened. I think relations between the three parties um, deteriorated between 2019 and uh, last year. Um, the parties on the left felt the government was not moving fast enough in terms of um, investment in the health the health system, in in terms of um, uh. relaxing uh, tough labour laws, um, and the socialists on the other hand thought that you know that they were going as as far as they could. They they were keen, obviously, to keep within. Um, the um, fiscal rules of the EU, and and so things eventually came to a head in the vote on the budget for 2002 uh, back in October, and the Communist Party and the Left Bloc resisted and refused to support the the Socialist government's budget. And in fact, um, voted with the right of centre parties in Parliament to defeat the government, um, triggering this early election two years ahead of schedule. I have to say, yeah, I have just one word. I have to say this: this conversation about the the left infighting seems to be as old as the left itself. With some people saying we're not going far enough, and some people saying we need to work within the system and do what is possible. It seems like you could hear this in, in 1917 Russia or in 1930 France. It's fascinating. Okay, in terms of general overview of uh, the socialist cabinet since 2015, I think there are two dimensions that must be uh, stressed. One is that uh, who came out as a winner uh, uh, of this parliamentary agreement? between the socialist and the radical left, the socialist. Now, why? Uh, first of all, because uh, uh, between 2015 and 2019, during the first four years of this uh, cabinet of the, of the Socialist Party, uh, Portuguese society realized that first, the, pol the main policies of the government, the foreign policy of Portugal, etc., etc., the uh, uh, relations with the EU, etc., didn't change. In the way, the concessions that the socialists uh, gave or offer to the communist and uh, and the left-wing bloc were, uh, uh, in a way, based on a dynamic of, of economic growth in Portugal. So we were talking about uh, increasing the minimum wage and other types of concessions, but uh, for the average Portuguese, in a way, the socialist cabinet was a socialist cabinet, uh, as usual. Now, who were the losers, in a way? Losers were, first of all, the communists, who the Communist Party is, uh, uh, in electoral terms, a party that was in a sort of a quiet decline. Uh, in the last local elections, they lost a lot of municipalities to the socialist. And so one of the main reasons why the communists decided to stop uh, this, uh, in a way, support to the socialist cabinet, uh, it's because uh, clearly they were the losers. Uh, what we know through 
surveys in the last four or five years tell us that the, the typical left-wing voter, the socialist voter, the communist voter, and the left-wing bloc voter did support this kind of parliamentary agreements. So they were optimistic huh. in terms of support to this uh, kind of, uh, uh, let us say, of uh, a political solution for a socialist cabinet with the support of the left. And they were caught by surprise uh, in October uh, 2020, a couple of months ago, with the dissolution of parliament uh, and, of course, this process of anticipated elections. And in a way, they didn't like. Uh, and that's probably why, that's probably why both the communist and also the left-wing bloc will be punished uh, uh, because of what they did in terms of uh, to break the agreement and to vote against the budget, uh, the socialist budget. Um, so I, I want to go back over those past five years of um, Costa governments. Um, when he went um, into this agreement back in 2015, it was after five years of um, Paso Escuelo as austerity, and um, it was in a kind of global European context of austerity, um, of you know the infamous Greek diet that uh, Greek had to suffer from uh, the ECB and the IMF and all, all the rest of them. Um, and somehow, kind of with with um, with a socialist Portugal got away with this. Portugal even more recently emerged as a vaccination front runner. So there's been quite a few successes. Um, could you explain us how Portugal has managed to get those successes? But also, um, we, we was reading an interesting article by Neil Locker in The Spectator, which, in which he writes, the crux of the matter is that the country's econ econ economics has suffered so many shocks that it makes the management of it almost impossible for either the centre-left or the centre-right without introducing major structural changes. Such reforms would lead in the short term to a spike in social costs and a decline in popular support. Unsurprisingly, none of the country's leaders are willing to take that risk. To what extent is this a fair description of the past five years? A country that has managed to avoid the worse, but failed to prepare for the better in the future. Uh, Antonio, Professor Costa. Uh, well, Peter can probably contribute uh, in, some of this, uh, in some of these dimensions. But let me stress that uh, in terms of, let's say, Portuguese politics, the socialists were successful in two ways. First, after a period of intervention by the International Monetary Fund and the European Union, Portugal crisis, uh, rescue packages, etc., the socialists uh, were able to do some concessions to their left, and at the same time to be uh, uh, what in Portugal is called the party of the contas certas, meaning that the finance minister and the socialist cabinet was able for the first time, as a matter of fact, to present uh, a budget uh, and uh, uh, many of the economic, let us say, uh, in a way, to be quick, 
uh, uh, to meet all, uh, uh, in a way, all the conditionality of the European Union with success mm. in the last uh, four years. So in economic terms, we can say that the, the management of the, of, the, of the socialist cabinet were in a way quite successful. Mm. And that's in the way, that's the reason why in 2019, you see, the centre-right was not able to uh, present uh, uh, an alternative, in a way, to the management of the, to the economic, in a way, management of and the economic policy of the, of the government. Uh, especially because it was a cabinet supported by the by the radical by the radical left. Uh-huh. But of course, Portugal has structural problems. Many of the economic growth in the last years was mainly based, for instance, on okay, on the on the good performance of Portuguese exports, on tourism, but of course, uh, 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 Portuguese economy has a lot of challenges, let us say, especially related with productivity. Peter can have more, I think, uh, uh, but let me just stress that in strict political terms, you see. In strict political terms, after years and years of a socialist cabinet responsible in a way uh, uh, for economic crisis in Portugal, and the right always stressing that the right uh, was in a way uh, uh, the only party, or the parties of the right were the only ones able to solve the economic problems uh. in Portugal, the socialists were in a way, during the first four years, quite successful. And Peter, any thoughts on that? Yes, I, I would. I would totally agree with an, an Antonio. I, I think this was one of the successes of the initial four years of the of the left wing coalition, which, as you know, is in Portuguese is called the Geringonça, which is a, ah. a phrase which means. Um, unlikely contraption um huh. which is is quite a it's quite an apt phrase perhaps and i think this was one of the successes and i think um, antonio costa's government was was seen as sort of offering hope to sort of um struggling um moderate center-left parties across across europe which you know very few of them were in government at the time and not not doing very well in the polls but he, he, his government seemed to show that it was possible, on one hand, to over, overturn the austerity measures, which, which had been introduced uh, during the bailout, at, but, with, but at the same time, um, keeping within the EU's fiscal rules, keeping the deficit, um, uh, you know, below the, the the required level uh, and the f- the foreign debt etc so this was you know his great boast uh, was that you know we can turn the page on austerity as he put it hmm. and 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 um and keep keep and keep within the eu's fiscal rules it's not impossible uh, Peter, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but um, aren't they the only government in the history of Portugal since 1974 to have a budget a budget in the green? That's that that's correct. I believe yes, there was there was a, right, yes. there was a, a short period um, 
um, when the, when there was a a, bu a budget surplus, which was the first time in in Portuguese democracy that 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 has happened. I think the, uh, the pandemic, of course, has caused caused a very deep recession in in particularly in 2020. And so things have changed since then. But it, it was a very positive and sort of hopeful note when when that happened. And I think what you were saying earlier about um, structural Portugal having structural problems that um, no government government has been able to overcome. I think that's um, that's very pertinent to, to to this election because basically the what the parties on the right are arguing is that um, you know Portugal has grown but very moderately um, if you take it over past 20 years I think in terms of uh, you know GD, GDP per capita it, the growth annual average growth in Portugal has been about half the European Union average and during that period on the, by the same measure several of the you know the former soviet bloc countries which joined the eu in 2004 if i'm not wrong um, have since overtaken portugal and this is one of the um, one of the uh, big debating points and big issues that the right is using in this campaign is that under the socialist Portugal has grown very little. Um, the truth of the matter is that under Antonio Costa, Portugal has in fact had the, the strongest um, period of GDP growth uh, in, 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 in terms of the European average um, since, since uh, Portugal joined the single currency back at the beginning of this century. Um, but overall, if you take it back to 20 or 25 years, the pace of growth has been very slow. And so the accusation, as it were, made by the Social Democrats and the other parties on the right is, is that Portugal, you know, is simply, it's been increasing public sector wages, it's been increasing social benefits and fueling the economy by... Um, um, through um, fueling um, consumer demand um, rather than investing in productive investment in increasing exports in a more in a way which would, would produce longer term and stronger growth so that, that's one of the key issues at at, um, at, at you know that's in question in, in this election I believe Mm. Um, maybe just a word before we, we, we move on to the election itself, a word on the very impressive vaccine rollout, because for one, it seemed like the Mediterranean Portuguese was well ahead of all you know, the Protestant Germanic countries uh, with its vaccine rollout, which has, been, which has been lauded as one of the best ones, if not the best one in, in the EU. Okay. Um, yes, that is, that is indeed true. Um, I think Portugal, in fact, uh, didn't get off to a very good start when the vaccination program began. Um, there was a lot of issues about uh, people jumping the queue, basically, um, that uh, officials in various sectors um, were, um, you know, 
overtaking people people without 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 um you know in an unfair way and the 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 initial um director of the vaccination campaign uh, resigned he was a hospital director and it was discovered that some of the staff at the hospital um he ran i mean he wasn't concerned in it but he 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 felt responsible they had been queue jumping so he resigned and i i think what changed things uh, changed things for very strongly was the appointment of um, a rear admiral, a former submarine commander, um, Henrik Gouveia-Yimelbu, who took over the program in February of last year, and he brought a, a certain a military rigor to the, the to the whole affair, and he was um, a very sort of hands-on. Um, director of the program he would show up everywhere wearing his military fatigues he he was a very sort of reassuring a uh, committed committed personality who who instilled a lot of confidence in the program and i think it it really took off f- from there and uh, i think you know he's become a, quite a national hero and a lot of people would like to see him you know run for president or something like that but uh, i think it was bringing in the military and this particular uh, commander that really changed thing turned things around for portugal in terms of vaccinations yes amateurs talk about strategy professionals talk about logistics um antonio what do you think of of uh, peter's depiction of a vaccine rollout in portugal yeah. yeah i agree with peter of course but i think we must have a cultural element as well uh, Portugal, as you know, is a very homogeneous nation-state, oh. really. Uh, and the Portuguese still, in a way, respect or are afraid of the state. In the sense that if the state decided to do, you know, in this case, vaccination, they basically obey. Uh, uh, um, what I mean by that is that uh, anti uh, let's say, resistant of civil society uh, to vaccination, for instance, was uh, in a way almost absent. So uh, uh, there is, of course, uh, a question of efficiency uh, through the leadership of this admiral, of course, but also a very responsive uh, answer of Portuguese society to the entire to the entire right. process. Uh, Portugal, of course, there is a sort of... A, side effect or uh, uh, civil portuguese civil society is is in a way weak it's not very active uh, uh, that's why i think uh, also the vaccination process was so successful in the case of portugal the same happens for instance during the first uh, the first uh, uh, phase of the pandemics uh, the portuguese decided to obey the government and stay at home uh, for many weeks, you see, uh, especially when we compare with Spain or even Italy or other Southern European countries, especially Greece. Um, Let's move on to the election proper. Um, Apart for um, Costa Socialist Party, I think there are three main uh, groups we need to keep an eye on. One is the traditional rival of the Socialist Party, the the Social Democrats. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that, about how they've been 
tightening the gap a little bit. The other two group of actors I want to talk about is one, the Socialist Party's left-wing allies, uh, the, the left-wing bloc and the Communist Party. Um, so maybe you can also talk a little bit about their gambit to break ranks with Costa and do you think it will pay off if they talked a little bit about it and uh, Antonio, you want to uh, optimistic about their, their odds after breaking away. And lastly, I think something which will be of interest to our listeners is Andre Ventura's um, Chega. Uh, he's quite a colourful character, so maybe a few words about him as well. Um, and Peter, do you want to begin? Okay. Yes. Well, um, yes, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, I think... Um, According to the, you know, the polls have changed considerably over the campaign. I think when, when the the election was called back at the beginning of of, of November, there yeah. was an eleven point eleven percentage point difference, with the PS um, on thirty nine percent and the PSD on twenty eight percent. That has since narrowed considerably to about a five point difference with the PS on 37% and the PSD on 32%. So I think um, that has changed the dynamics of the campaign. Initially, Antonio Costa and the Socialist, their their budget had been rejected by their left-wing partners and they they were very unhappy about that. They didn't want this election at all. They consider it completely unnecessary. And mm-hmm. and so they they began the campaign essentially asking for an absolute majority. Um, it, initially, uh, Antonio Costa didn't use those words because uh, an absolute absolute majorities in Portugal are not that popular. People see them as uh, as giving a single party to the free the freedom to um, do what they want, basically. And there have been few absolute majorities in in the 50 years of Portuguese democracy, and they're not looked back on with any particular um, fondness, let's say. Mm. So he he initially didn't directly say it, but as things moved on and it seemed very ambiguous what exactly he was asking for, he did eventually say, what I'm looking for is an absolute majority, then I won't have to depend on these former left-wing partners who have let me down now over the budget and forced us into this election um, risking a victory by the right wing Um, but as uh, as the polls have closed and the gap between the PS and the PSD on the other hand has narrowed and it's come pretty clear that an absolute majority is unobtainable by either party um, Costa has had to row back somewhat and has without directly saying it, saying we are open to negotiations on the left and potentially with the PSD on the right. Um, So things, uh, because of the sort of parliamentary arithmetic and the polls, things about a, a potential, some kind of understanding on the left has again become, has come into play and is now a possibility. I think the because of the the way the polls have narrowed, I think the outlook for the election is very uncertain. It's been described as the most uncertain election in in recent history for, for the past twenty or thirty years in Portugal. Uh. So the outcome remains very uncertain, and, and in particular, exactly what will happen in terms of forming gov- government coalitions 
when when the results emerge i think that's going to be quite a difficult and complicated process um antonio uh Yes, I agree with Peter, of course. Uh, it's, it's very uncertain uh, who is going to uh, form uh, a cabinet, in this case, the socialist or the social democrat. But one thing I think it's, it's certain, we will have a much more fragmented parliament mm. in terms of party representation. Now, uh, on the left-wing side of the political spectrum, in a way, there is nothing new. Uh, what do I mean by this? The socialists might win, uh, uh, might lose the elections, but they will uh, be by far the most important party of the left. The communists will probably decline a bit, but they will be there. Uh, and the left-wing bloc will be probably punished oh. by the left-wing voter and will decrease... Uh, their parliamentary representation, but they will be there as well. So nothing new uh, on the left-wing side of the political spectrum. Let me just stress one point that is important, I think, uh, uh, for those who are less acquaintance with the Portuguese, uh, 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 the Portuguese democracy. The communists have a very stable uh, uh, electorate, a very stable electorate, uh, you know, since the Portuguese transition to democracy. Oh. It's declining, but we know who they are, where they are. Oh. Uh, uh, the left-wing bloc, uh, it's a, a left libertarian party who got a lot of votes, a former uh, socialist uh, segments of the electorate to usually vote for the socialist party, especially when many years ago, 20 years ago around that, the socialists became very centrist, uh. okay, uh, very Blairist. Uh-uh. That's uh, when they got uh, uh, they, they they start to be a, a reasonably important party on the left. But on the left, there is nothing new. Okay? On the right, yes, because uh, we have two parties uh, in two thousand nineteen. 2019, not exactly by important structural reasons. Uh, uh, the right-wing voter used to vote for the Social Democratic Party or for the small conservative CDS. Uh-huh. Okay, now what happened in 2019? In 2019, the socialists were going to win with the, the anticipated winners of the election. The Social Democratic Party was in turmoil with uh, uh, its leader always challenged by, uh, by, uh, by other leaders of the party. So the Social Democratic Party was going to lose the elections. Uh, the Social Democratic Party was in turmoil. And for the first time, two small, and let's not forget that the Portuguese electoral system allowed uh, uh, to have a representation in, in Parliament, for instance, with concentrated votes, with 1%, 1%, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, there is uh, the possibility to, uh, to have an MP in Portuguese Parliament. Uh, so, for the first time, two parties on the right of the, of the Social Democratic Party did he much? One, 
the so-called liberal initiative, uh, that's the typical uh, uh, liberal party, uh, uh, always a component, as another effect of the, of the CDS and the PSD. Nothing special here. Uh, uh, they uh, will consolidate in Parliament with two, three percent of the vote. Younger, a younger electorate, uh, uh, more uh, sensitive towards the liberalization of Portuguese society, to privatization, uh. to less presence of the state, etc., etc. And that's the most important element, of course, for the first time, a radical right populist party. Now, in terms of in terms of uh, the voter, the values uh, of mobilization, uh, the elements of mobilization of this party were, of course, present in Portuguese society. Uh, we know through uh, surveys in the last 30 years, as a matter of fact, that around 15 to 20 percent of Portuguese society uh, are very uh, sensitive towards authoritarian values. Uh, order, uh, you know, conservative values in terms of national identity, mm. in terms of immigration, etc., etc. But there was no political expression uh, 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 in Parliament representing these voters. They were, in a way, forced uh, to vote either for the small CDS or for the, P, uh, or for the PSD. And finally, uh, uh, André Ventura, a very able uh, young politician coming from the PSD. It does not come from the extreme right, uh, from any neo-fascist or radical right. No, he comes from the PSD. He was able uh, to mobilize uh, uh, to mobilize this segment in 2019, and uh, certainly uh, it will increase. To conclude. Uh, the right, in a way, and that's very interesting, I think, the right basically is facing the same type of problems of the left. Uh, there are two major parties, of course, in our political spectrum. They will probably have two-thirds of parliament, but if the Social Democratic Party wins the election, they will now have a much more unstable and radical partner on their right. It's, going, it's, it's not going to be easy uh, to uh, make agreements in Parliament uh, uh, with the Shira, this radical right-wing party. It will be very easy to do it with the Liberals, since the Liberals will probably join the cabinet if the Social Democratic Party wins. Uh, but so, in a way, the Socialists and the Social Democrats are in a sort of a symmetric uh type of challenges, uh, uh, a radical left and the radical right. Huh. Well, well, let's, uh, let's try to shift gears here and, and just touch upon a word quickly on, on EU uh, affairs and EU policy, both in terms of uh, the kinds of policies that Portugal's government would like to see implemented at the EU level, but also the ways in which the EU is inviting itself into the domestic uh, national conversation. Um, you know, Portugal held the EU Council presidency from January to June last year, and uh, the Prime Minister's European agenda was correspondingly in the spotlight. Uh, on one hand, uh, Costa has eloquently argued for uh, more flexible EU budget rules, 
But then in November 2020, he came out with a proposal that, that we thought was very, very important. And as a podcast, we try to cover uh, European issues. He essentially um, came up with a proposal to link uh, European financial solidarity to European values. And at the time, what was happening in, at the EU was that the frugal four, uh, Holland, Denmark, Austria, and Sweden, were um, uh, essentially claiming that uh, uh, COVID relief money had to be made conditional on uh, rule of law, uh, in countries like Poland and Hungary. So as the frugal four and the liberal holdouts kind of haggled over uh, COVID relief, Prime Minister Costa came out with a proposal to shrink the EU around a more cohesive core. And I, I want to quote here from a column in the Wall Street Journal by Walter Russell Meek, who I think very eloquently explained what was going on at the time and what, what Costa's proposal was. Um, the column read, to make Europe work, Costa says, the countries that genuinely care about EU values need to slough off the unbelievers. The remnant would be a smaller but purer group of countries ready to build the kind of ever deeper union of which EU founders like Monet and Schumann dreamed. So my, my question to, to you both, starting with Peter and then turning to Professor Costa, is just how important is the EU in Portugal's domestic politics? Um, you know, how, you know, is it really in the minds of most Portuguese voters? And what's going to happen to the country's voice in the EU if Costa loses the election and say the social democrat or the, the center right kind of uh, carries the day, starting with Peter Wise and then turning to Professor Costa? Yeah, it, it's a very interesting point because it, commentators have been noting over the over the weeks of the campaign how the how Europe as an issue has been completely absent from from this campaign. Um, there have been about 30 debates between the party leaders, uh, lots of campaigning in the streets and in the hustings, and it virtually never comes up as an issue. Um, I think Portugal is a very pro-European Union country. I think you, it's difficult to find any, any strong um, anti-European sentiment within Portugal. I think... Portugal obviously has benefited financially from funds and will, will benefit from the, um, yeah. the the COVID relief and resilient funds extensively too. But it's it's a lot more than that. I think I think Portugal came out of a, a democracy. Uh, I'm sorry, came out of a, a dictatorship uh, almost 50 years ago when it had felt very isolated in the, in the world. It's, sort of isolated physically on the western edge of Europe, but also politically. And I think joining the e e European Union in 1980, I, uh -huh. um, you know, was very important to Portugal culturally and socially as well as well as politically as, as feeling as, as belonging, belonging to a club. And Mario Suarez, the president who took Portugal into the European Union, always argued that it was a way of of defending portugal's democracy as as that as a member of the, of the eu there was no fear of portugal falling back into some kind of um, right wing or, or or left wing authoritarian state but as far as you know the ins and outs of eu policy um go they they haven't featured at all in in the election campaign, and I don't think they, you know, they're a big issue for most Portuguese voters. I think, you know, and and just to add that, I think there's 
not a significant difference as I understand it. Antonio perhaps will be able to go in, into more 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 of the nuances, but I don't think there is a significant difference in EU policy um, between the two main parties that are vying to vying to be the next government. I think Portugal is very pro-European. Um, it, it it defends the the values of of yes. of of the European Union and and Costa. I think you know is seen as a as a as a is a popular figure I, I believe within the European um, Commission and the Council as someone who stands up um, for the for those values as as he did with those with those remarks that you mentioned earlier uh, professor Costa do you do you do you expect EU matters to to weigh in uh, to, to weigh in in the choice that Portuguese voters will will make in no I totally agree I, I totally agree with Peter uh, uh, there is first of all, since the 1990s, since the beginning, as a matter of fact, since uh, the consolidation of Portuguese democracy 30 years ago, but especially uh, uh, since the euro, uh, a large consensus between the major uh, centre-right-wing party and the major centre-left-wing party on European issues. Uh, and uh, the Portuguese are so... Uh, uh, pro-European in a way that not even the radical right uh, plays the Eurosepticist card uh, uh, in these elections, as a matter of fact. So uh, the European issues are not divisive and uh, in a way that's uh, why they are absence from this uh, this uh, electoral this electoral campaign um, so ju just to finish off let's wade a little bit here into the history of portugal um in 2020 the scottish historian tom gallagher published to much acclaim across the english-speaking uh, conservative twitter sphere a biography of salazar whom he called the dictator who refused to die the book was positively reviewed in several places, but more importantly, its rosy depiction of Salazar as somehow a benevolent autocrat was taken at face value by conservative readers. Um, how would you assess Portugal's memory of Salazar's 36-year rule? Um, is it is it um, is the country still you know is the country still recovering from the dictatorship of Salazar? You you would say, or is it way back in the in the rearview mirror, starting with? Peter, and then turning to Professor Costa. Well, I think Antonio will have a much better, a much better take on this. Um, I wasn't, uh, I never, <laughs> as very few people are these days, um, you know, have no memory and no experience of, Salaz of the Salazar or the Marcelo Catano regime that followed him. But, um, but I think he's not, he's not. Um, He's not a, a vivid presence in 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 Portuguese politics or culture these days, but I think he's he's clearly still remembered. It was, you know, he it was of was after all a forty eight year dictatorship, and it was a long long period in 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 Portuguese history. Of course, I think you know we have to realize that although it was an author authoritarian regime, with with uh, very lip with with great extensive limits on political and freedom and freedom of speech and um you know imprisonment and uh, torture in some cases of political opponents it wasn't um you know 
a brutal fascist regime in in the style of, uh, of Nazi Germany or, or Mussolini's Italy in that sense. Um, so I think I think there are you know there are what they call Saudazistas. People have a certain uh, backward fond backward glance towards Salazarism um, amongst um, older generations because they they see those times as you know the books were balanced um, and uh, you know there was no social upheaval um, people knew you know where how things stood etc it was stable um, but I think that's, you know, a very rosy-eyed picture of, of the reality of those years when Portugal basically um, stagnated, where only a very few, an elite few were able to have a university or a further education of any kind, um, when people were very limited in their outlook and and what was possible for them so i think you know although there are small strands of society in portugal that do look back to those years with certain as i say rose-colored glasses i don't think it's very strong at all yeah i i agree with peter i don't know why john gallagher wrote that because his biography of salazar is an interesting book since all the all the data we have about the attitudes of the Portuguese towards the authoritarian past. Uh, in a way, all of that is very clear. Around more than two-thirds of the Portuguese have a negative oh. view of Salazar uh, and the authoritarian past. The Portuguese case is very interesting because, in a way, uh, Salazar is far from being as uh, controversial as, for instance, the legacy of Franco is in Spain, as you know, where in Spain you still have struggles about uh, the Francoist past. That's not the case. That's not the case in Portugal. Especially because, and that's a, 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 a huge problem, let's say, for the act, political activation of the authoritarian past, even by radical right-wing groups, it's because Salazar is associated with poverty and underdevelopment. Uh, and that's probably the main reason why uh, Portuguese society has, uh, at large, a very negative view of the authoritarian past. Well, that, that uh, concludes our conversation here. Thank you so much uh, to the both of you for availing yourselves to this, this wide-ranging conversation. We hope our audience will come away uh, from it with a, with a good enough grounding as we head towards the upcoming legislative race. And again, thank you to, to the both of you so much. So, Professor Antonio Costa, no relation to the Prime Minister, and Peter Weiser, the Financial Times, are both out. Uh, what did you think of this episode, Francois? Well, first of all, to our viewers, I want to make one thing very clear, which is that we did this recording before the election. I want to explain why. We, done, we had done this, this interview and the interview on Ukraine roughly at the same time. But we freaked out so much that something will happen in Ukraine, which would make our recording completely irrelevant, that we decided that we would keep the, Portu the Portuguese interview for after the Portuguese election. Because I think most of the analysis, we're going to talk about it, but most of the analysis um, from Peter in, um, 
and uh, Professor Costa are, are completely relevant um, despite the election. So uh, one thing which I thought was interesting, so obviously the Socialist Party won the election with 41% of the uh, votes, which means they're going to get 117 seats out of 230, so they get an absolute majority, which they did not have before the election. It's a complete triumph. The block over far left got lost 14 seats. The um, communists lost six seats. So it's an absolute triumph for the, the socialists who have really reaffirmed their leadership, not only on the left, but also in the kind of wider political landscape in um, Portugal. But I think what really helped Antonio Costa, again, not the person we interviewed, but the prime minister, what really helped Antonio Costa is the fact the left actually kind of shriveled. There's been a useful vote for the Socialist Party and the electorate sanctioned the Bloco de Izquierda and the Communist Party, which is exactly what um, uh, Peter and Antonio were t- telling us in the uh, interview. And on the right, there is the opposite phenomenon, which is, I think, the, the, the PPD, um, PSD party, the centre-right Social Democrats, have actually done roughly the same um, from the last election, 20-28%. But they lost seats partly because there's been a disunion of the right with the rise of Chega, who went from one seat to 12 seats. There's been another small party, the Liberal Party, which went from um, one seat to eight seats. And this kind of division really helped uh, the Socialist Party because it's a proportional system in Portugal, but it's a proportional system which tends to favor larger parties a little to make sure uh, stable majorities are possible. Yeah, and I think we, we, we... Let's let's try to hammer this point a little more, Francois, because what you, what you seem to be suggesting yeah. here, and I, I think I concur with you, but what, what you seem to be suggesting is that it is not paid off for the two parties of the far left who have defected no. the government coalition on on the on the critique that these socialists were being not uh, left wing enough, and 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 I, yeah. you seem to you seem to suggest that the main takeaway from this election is do not radicalize yourself into a corner because that will only benefit the center-left, right? That's kind of what... Yeah. Well, I think, I think more generally, it's kind of a iron rule of politics, which is the people who stab never get the reward. Um, we, we all remember, obviously, our, our ancient classical history. Um, it is Brutus and, and, and all his allies who kill uh, Caesar, but in the end, yeah. they don't get power. And if you, if you go back to Brexit, we all remember, obviously, that Boris Johnson was the one who knived, uh, very obviously, David Cameron. But in the end, after the referendum, it wasn't Boris Johnson who got the job of prime minister. It was actually Theresa May. So often traitors, people who are identified as having betrayed, uh, rarely get rewarded in politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, I, I don't think we, we emphasized enough, uh, Francois, what a... What a um, what a special political spectrum this is in, in several respects. One of them being that mm-hmm. I mean, you've got three parties of the left. You've yep. got a very powerful socialist party which is in government. To its left, you've got two far left parties, Bloco mm-hmm. and PSP, um, who have got substantial differences. I mean, from from what I gather, um, you know, the PSP seems to be kind of the traditional traditional communist um, uh, party. In fact, <laughs> still remember in, in my youthful. Uh, teenage years when I I, yeah. uh, I was uh, I was a, a far left militant myself. Uh, a lot of a lot of young Spanish communists uh, would go to the Pesepe's annual festival in Portugal, which was Europe's mm. largest. They would go to the, it was called Avante. So uh, I think mm-hmm. I think 
Portugal has one of these sort of uh, historically important uh, communist parties. Um, I mean, it's a Euro communist party. So I think, you know, they, they've, um, they, they broke away uh, uh, with the Soviet Union er early on and kind of mm -hmm. in, in the Cold War uh, and became this sort of um, milder form of communism. But they've, they've remained very powerful. And in this last election, they came ahead of Bloco. So Bloco is second to the PSP. Um, which I thought was interesting as well, and and um, and I think the, the other the other two kind of uh, uh, surprises this election perhaps were uh, Andre Ventura, obviously as you said, came on really really strong with seven seven point two percent of the vote, and the Liberals the Liberals came with uh, five percent of the vote, so yeah. It really yeah. changed the political landscape actually. But I I think if you're looking at kind of the European landscape. The, um, the anomaly isn't so much the existence of Chega and the rise of Chega. I think, if anything, it's kind of a, a correction um, compared to where the rest of the European landscape is. What yeah. I think is really remarkable is the fact that you have roughly, what, more than 50% of the electorate that has voted for a socialist party or parties to the left of it. Um, uh, we've, we've been wanting to do an episode on, on this last summer, but in the end, didn't, didn't quite fall through. But on the right-wing shift of, the, of public opinion in Europe, and Portugal is a clear exception. And there aren't that many exceptions right now of very left-wing countries. I mean, even if you take the example of Germany, which elected um, uh, left, or the German parliament chose a left-wing um, government, even then, if you add the vote of the socialists, if you vote out of the, of the social democrats, the votes of the uh, greens and of the far left, you don't reach fifty percent. You don't reach fifty percent. So I think it's a, it's one of those clear exceptions. Which you, know, you would see plenty of countries in the nineteen eighties or nineteen seventies where fifty percent of electorate voting for left wing parties. And nowadays, it, it seems to be much more of an exception. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, what a, what a fascinating episode. I think you know, I, I for one, but I think I, I speak for the both of us. Um, you know, very happy that um, that we were able to cover Portugal, which is a country that you know rarely makes it into this sort of the the, the European um, conversation. And uh, and this was a an interesting election, and we'll see we'll see what happens with the coalition uh, negotiations. The the yeah. obviously seem poised to govern on their own without yeah. without the support of anyone else. Yeah, I, I was I was reading his his um, victory speech. And he said, uh, having an absolute majority does not mean you rule on your own. You've got a responsibility to rule with all the Portuguese, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, yeah, he, yeah. he, he essentially is going to he's going to do what he wants. And that's 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 good for if you're um, a socialist supporter. Um, before we say goodbye to all of you, I just want to remind you that we have uh, plenty of great hopes and ambitions for this semester. We are creating our legal structure. Um, we are building very interesting episodes right now. We are working on different partnerships with different media publications and so on and so on. Um, all of this takes um, time, it takes effort, it takes money as well because we need to pay for a lot of the equipment. Um, so if you end up being here most weeks listening to this show, or maybe you can share the love by supporting us on Patreon and join the wonderful groups of patrons we have, um, who are from all over Europe and all over the world, actually. So we want to thank our patrons again. Um, if you want to support us, you can support us for the price of a sandwich a month. It's really not much. It should be in the Patreon, this link below. You can click on it and support us. If you can't afford the sandwich a month, you can always write a review. You can subscribe on Spotify. Uh, you can share the podcast with a friend. 
all these things really help. I mean, you know, writing a review might be the kind of the easiest thing you can do. You don't have money to spare, fine. But these reviews really help with a search engine optimization. So uh, if you have time to devote to DVs, thanks a lot. Um, we also have a brand new website. You can uh, click down below in the description with a Patreon link. It, it's a great way for you to see all the episodes we've done, all the articles we've published, because we've published a lot of episodes around the themes we covered in Common Decency. And, and I think actually some of the articles are a really, really good way to get the gist of a podcast in a, in a very short, uh, short and snappy read. So I really recommend you go and read some of the articles. And uh, yeah, to uh, all of you, thank you, Jorge. Thank you. And to our listeners, I say to all of you, see you next week. See you next week.